0: thanks for downloading development drums episode 16 this is owen barda in addis ababa today i'll be talking to alan Beatty, the world trade editor of the financial times about his new book which looks at why some countries have had more economic success than others we'll be joined by professor robert wade from the london school of economics before that, I'd like to remind you that you can download Development Drums free of charge on iTunes or from the Development Drums website at developmentdrums.org. I'd also like to thank the many people who've contributed suggestions, questions and ideas, both through the website and through our Facebook group. You can also follow Development Drums on Twitter and the username Development Drum. I'm joined by Alan Beatty, who is the World Trade Editor of the Financial Times and the author of a new book, uh, False Economy. Alan, welcome to Development Drums. Nice to be here. And by Robert Wade, who's Professor of Political Economy at the London School of Economics, the LSE in London. Thank you. Now, Alan, let's start with why you wrote this book. And in particular, there are several other books about... Uh, why poor nations are poor, rich nations are rich, what's ha- what the difference is between them. You can think of The Wealth and Poverty of Nations by Landis, Jared Diamond's book, um, Danny Rodrick's book, One, Economics, Many Recipes.
1: W- what made you want to write a book um, that adds to that literature? I think I felt that despite what's been written already, there were a lot of myths um, that have been kicking around, development myths about... The impact of trade rules, myths in particular about the impact of culture and religion and so on on growth, and I kind of felt particularly trying to reach a wider audience that these were questions and myths that um, that needed to be addressed and you know the book is written in a series of, of, of kind of questions and interesting stories and thoughts and so on rather than a big kind of chronological sweep and some of them just literally came because somebody asked me a particular question you know one of the chapters which is actually about trade routes and supply chains <clears throat> is called uh, why doesn't africa grow cocaine and that was literally because somebody came up to me at a party once and said you write about african and development and stuff don't you tell me this why doesn't africa grow cocaine given that they smuggle it and i thought that is a very good question and kind of determined to go off and, and find out the answer
0: so the book draws on lots of different, as you say, kind of rather idiosyncratic questions, but you're also drawing on questions, that it seems to me, where you want to challenge a conventional wisdom, that there are lots of ideas out there, you know, that Protestants work harder than other religions, or that... Ghana can't export chocolate because of eu trade rules, so you seem to you seem to be wanting to pick out bits of received wisdom and challenge them. Is that part of your purpose?
1: Yes, I think that's true. I think one of the problems about development and development economics is that it's been very susceptible to the kind of monocausal explanation. You know, countries are, are poor because of X, whether X is their religion or because they're landlocked or because they're tropical or whatever it is, uh, or because they have oil and diamonds, so they're subject to the natural resource curse. And what I wanted to point out was things are actually a lot more complex than that, and reducing everything to you know, simple explanations um, doesn't really work. And I think actually what you've seen over the last few years in development economics is much more Eclecticism and uh, kind of a collapse of of iron certainties about the way the world works, which makes it a much more challenging, but at the same time much more interesting field to be to be writing and thinking about. Your your book has a, a a flash on the front saying
0: why countries succeed or fail and how things could be different, which rather offers the promise that there's going to be a a, a recipe in here. And yet, as, you, as you've just said, uh, actually your, your conclusion is that um, you don't know what the answers are, and that anyone who says they do, um, you probably shouldn't trust. Um, now, so is your book intended to say, in the end, there are many different answers, or there are no
1: answers, or what is it... I think are? what it says is there are broad lessons that we can draw, you know, cutting your country off from the rest of the world is generally a bad idea... Um, All countries urbanize but some countries plan ahead for cities and and, uh, don't try and force them. Um, It's generally best to let your economy do what it turns out to be best at rather than forcing it down a predetermined path but then when it does show some specialism it can help if the government comes in and supports it you know don't worry too much about religion and culture but watch out for people using religion and culture to kind of further their own ends. These are very general lessons and they can be applied in many um, different ways. Uh, and I think what I'm opposing is the idea of micromanagement, that there is a, a standard, you know, very detailed model that can be applied to every single country. But I mean, certainly the first chapter of the book compares the trajectories of the US and Argentina, and you know, I think it's fairly clear to see how Argentina went wrong over the last decade, and I'd feel quite, um, quite confident giving Argentina some advice on what they should be doing now. Let's come to the specific recommendations um, in just a
0: second but I want, to, I want to draw out two versions of the argument that says um, there is no single recipe for development. So one version of it says all countries are very different, they have very different circumstances um, and the, the idea that you can just sit in Washington and design a recipe that will work everywhere is wrong. Um, uh, because there's so much variation across countries and another version of it a different version of it says and these are not necessarily incompatible um, that there's a lot of luck involved that that the the problem isn't that countries differ across each other the problem is that actually you don't know what's going to work we don't know enough and a lot of it ends up with chance and you end up on a happy trajectory or you end up on an unhappy trajectory and that could just be, you know, coincidence or, or luck. Now, it seems to me that Danny Roderick argues the first. He says, you know, you've got lots of, different, um, lots of different ways you can approach this. But in the end, he ends up with his growth diagnostics and you crank a handle and you do some econometrics and you figure out what the right answer is for that country. Well, it seems to me you're saying something a bit different from him. You're saying actually a lot of this is to do with path dependence, how you happen to end up here, whether you got lucky or not, how the different interest groups and politics played out within a country.
1: I'm not sure there's a, that much of a contrast, um, as you may count, because even path dependence isn't just to do with luck, it is to do with decisions that have been taken. You know, if you take a, dis- a decision, even if it's centuries earlier, and your country gets stuck in a particular way, yes, it's harder to get off that path. You know, it's, it's harder to leap onto a different path, but it doesn't mean it's impossible. It doesn't mean that, you're, that your kind of destiny is set from that point on. And the point I was trying to make by bringing in path dependence was um, that the, what you might call the traditional kind of IMF World Bank approach of turning up to a country and saying you should do X, Y and Z um, can be very difficult, not just because countries are different, but also because you have to take account of prevailing political circumstances and what is actually possible in that given country. And a lot of that will depend on how the country has got to where it is. Robert, what's your sense of where the debate now
0: is on how countries develop and in particular will come onto to the, the role of trade in this?
2: Well, I agree that uh, there has been a shift in the intellectual climate uh, over the past, perhaps, decade, um, away from the conviction that there is a a fairly standard uh, recipe at a rather high level of generalisation. The recipe, that is, that we know as the Washington Consensus, uh, with its emphasis upon very low levels of um, inflation... In other words, macroeconomic stability, um, privatization of all state-owned enterprises, um, very free trade, um, and a number of other uh, elements. I think that um, there is now much more agreement than there would have been, say, ten and twenty years ago, that um, that that may give some very general orientations, but. Um, it's not um, something that can be applied by an IMF or World Bank official getting off the plane in a country where they may have spent very little time and immediately uh, begin to say what they think the government should do. There's much more uncertainty now um, than uh, there was and I think one of the upsides of this dreadful financial slump is that it has uh, raised the level of um, uncertainty that being said um, one response to uh, this uncertainty uh, that you find in the literature comes from for example Bill Easterly and perhaps Alan you would yourself tend to agree with this response which is that um, because we don't know uh, a, a formula for development um Therefore, the solution is um, maximum free markets, maximum openness for all economies, uh, which somehow or other is not treated as a formula. but the, reason, the logic is that this will increase the chances of discovery of, um, uh, of, of new opportunities that can't be foreseen except by people who are very decentralized on the ground seeing things appear in front of them and seizing uh, the moment and so as I said this one one response to this moving away from a standard formula um, is to actually go for a standard formula though it's not called that which is maximum free markets my own um, argument would be rather different I would see a role for a bigger role for the the government as an orchestrator of a discovery process which is more coordinated than say, um, uh, Bill Easterly would imagine, which involves a stronger amount of government authority, not picking winners, but coordinating um, a kind of an insider system of key uh, business uh, leaders, uh, trade unions, um, others, in a long-term process of interaction about a national development strategy using markets. Now, Alan,
0: you have this phrase, um, try to let your economy do what it's best at and support it where possible without trying to force it down a predetermined path.
1: Indeed. I mean, the classic example, I'd say, just look at Africa. You know, the African countries in general, and I know it's it's, there's there's too much of a tendency to generalize with Africa, but nonetheless, there were fairly consistent patterns, came out of um, colonialism saying, we want to be industrial economies. And they tried to build up, in many cases, very similar industries, you know, textile industries, kind of um, basic manufacturing behind large tariff walls as um, in the classic import substitution model. Uh, And that's what they determined they were going to be. They were going to be industrial countries. That is what colonialism had prevented them from doing. Um, that is what they ought to be doing, and in almost all cases, it failed. What I think would have been more helpful, uh, and you know, I'm not a businessman, and I've never um, lived in Africa or run a company in Africa. But what I think might have been more helpful is, you know, to give a more degree of freedom to the economy and say, what does it look like we're good at? Well, one of the things that kind of Africa has been generally good at is is um, primary commodities so how conceivably could we build on that and particularly how could we build um a value chain based on that you know it seems logical to me without being an, an expert that if you produce primary commodities the next thing to do is to try and bring more of that value chain in country in the way that for example botswana has been blessed with diamonds has brought more of the, the value chain of, of um, sorting and polishing and so on of diamonds within country it seem, it would seem logical to me that for ethiopia or uganda Um, more of the value chain of um, uh, processing coffee should be bought in country. Um, And if it turns out that you're good at that, then fine, you might well need some government intervention to help, whether it's seed capital or infrastructure or training or whatever else. But I think if a strategy you're following appears not to work, then you should be prepared to abandon it fairly quickly. And I don't think that historically a lot of developing countries have been prepared to abandon their cherished development plans particularly quickly. And this brings
0: us naturally to the infant industry protection argument, and there is still um, a body of, there's an argument, isn't there, between those people who um, think that you need to build up industries behind some kind of protection, uh, whether it's of, of tariff barriers or quotas or restrictions on imports, and some possibly some kind of government support or subsidy. And those people who think that the result of that, at least in some countries, is that you end up—and you give some examples in your book, Alan—of uncompetitive industries that stay uncompetitive because they're protected by this tariff barrier, are never able to. They—they uh, they end up just sucking in uh, resources from the state. And I think the question then is: Well, so what should a government do? What's you know, if you start down this path, it is quite difficult to get off the. Uh, to get away from it, it's quite difficult. Um, t- to start creating infant industries and then move away from them. So what what would you say is now your... I mean, because this sentence could mean nothing or it could mean everything, this this idea that you want to let your economy do what it's best at and support it where possible. What, what is possible and what is sensible for a developing country? Robert, do you want...
2: Well, I would move away from the framing that you just gave, that is... Um, should the government support infant industries or not. Um, And I would refer to the actual practice in Taiwan, which is a practice I've studied in some considerable detail. Of course, the Taiwan government did quite a lot of what you could call conventional industrial policy. That is, it decided to um, create a steel industry, a petrochemical industry, and so on. These were big investments with a great deal of government initiative. And... Uh, That's part of the story, but another very important part of the Taiwan story that is much more replicable in African countries, for example, uh, other low-income countries, um, is quite different. Uh, The government established early on, like in the 1950s, what was in effect an industrial extension service, analogous to an agricultural extension service, with something of the order of 100, 150 industrial engineers who, whose job it was to go out, visit factories. They were divided into input-output chains. So somebody uh, in the, the textile chain would go out visiting textile factories uh, for several days a month. And they would be um, doing two kinds of things. They would be bringing um, knowledge of um, developments in the international textile market, developments in textile machinery, and so on, to the factories, but equally they would be taking knowledge that they had learned about production problems, production possibilities, from the factory into the the heartland of government, where planning was being carried out, Um, and, uh, and feeding then a more general process of Discovery of new opportunities, but in a very micro kind of way. This is not about picking winners. This is about having a core of people who are public officials engaged in sort of nudging um, private producers all the time to think about upgrading, going up the supply chain, as Alan said, think about diversifying, thinking, think about um, making... Um, long-term supply contracts with subsidiaries of multinationals in ta- Taiwan or in country, that subsidiaries that are currently importing material that could be produced domestically if there was a long-term supply contract. This was the kind of thing done at the coalface um, that was going on in Taiwan for decade after decade. So and this- that, I think, is a very useful kind of function for a government to orchestrate, and it's it's very different from the the sorts of government interventions that Alan was reacting at. I'd, I'm not sure that many governments have been doing the things that Alan um, says they were wrongly doing. I'm not sure they've been doing them for the past let's say two decades. They were doing them, they were doing protection, but they were doing protection very badly on the whole. But my point is you can do protection well it's not so the, the debate is should not be about um protection no protection it should be about how to do protection well how to do do
1: it badly and it's just a question of doing protection well. well i think it's a question of doing development well but i think protection it depends what we mean by protection but if by protection we're talking about you know isolating or privileging local companies over um you know over imports then i think that is Always been a dangerous route, and I think the the most important thing about the difference between the East Asian experience and say the African experience or the East Asian experience and the Latin American experience is that you know, not just in Taiwan but in other East Asian countries, although there was some state there was quite a lot of state intervention to support industry, by the way, you will find lots of people arguing that that didn't particularly help you know there's been work done that In Japan, for example, the the industries that grew the fastest were not those that received state intervention. But even those that did were encouraged to export and they were encouraged to compete on world markets. So there was actually a kind of a check on whether they were actually working or not. That's not necessarily what I would call protection. I would call that encouragement and development, but I wouldn't necessarily call it protection. And I think that's the important distinction between um, the way that industrial intervention, industrial policy has traditionally been done, and the way that government development policy might be done now. Let,
0: let's move on more broadly to, I mean, you asked the tantalising question, why doesn't Africa export cocaine? Oh, it does export cocaine, why doesn't it grow cocaine? Tell us tell us what your answer was to your friend who asked you this at a dinner
1: party. Uh, once i gone and looked into it, and talked to the UN Office of Drugs and Crime, um, what I really found was that it's essentially the same reason that Africa doesn't you know, grind its own coffee beans or make its own cocoa beans into chocolate and so forth. It's just the lack of simple, basic infrastructure, um, roads, ports, and pl- particularly political stability um, that enable supply chains to be built and maintained. Um, one of the kind of ironies of, of cocaine production is that because it's illegal, you need... You obviously need to buy off local politicians, but you need a kind of degree of political stability enabled to do that because coca, as it turns out, has uh, is a shrub with quite a kind of long a long life. It's not a quick growing thing. Um and as Bob Dylan said, to live outside the law you must be honest. So the reason that Africa exports uh, cocaine but doesn't actually grow it itself is just largely simply because of those basic things which are held back all parts of its economies you know lack of certainty over transport and infrastructure and politics um, and ports and paperwork and these are really boring things to talk about and you know it's very hard I know as a journalist to interest a news desk in a story about you know the Zambian Bureau of Weights and Measures where I once spent um, a particularly fascinating morning however those things in reality are actually much more important than Trade policy and you know evil subsidies and most of the things about trade that that dominate a lot of the debate. Would I be right in thinking that
0: you're saying that that um, the the more um, kind of nuanced things you might do to support business and exporters and industry, the kinds of things that Robert was talking about, um, feel like they are um, they come second after you get the basics right, after you get your ports working, your tax system working, your um, your arrangements for registering a business, those kinds of things—is that? Am I hearing that there's a kind of getting the basics right problem that
1: affects, for example, a lot of African countries? Yes, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, if you just talk to people who try to do business, um, I mean, let, let, give me the coffee example. Um, the first, to my knowledge, the first plant in Uganda, which um, actually roasts and grinds coffee, set up by a man called Andrew Ruggisera, Um Having spoken to him about it, he says, look, it basically takes him a month to get things from Uganda to the port in Mombasa, and that's because the roads are terrible. It takes days even to get across the Uganda um, border. These are kind of very basic, simple things, or at least they're they're kind of conceptually quite simple things. They they may not always be very simple to implement. But unless those are in place, then, you know, all the encouragement and and kind of expertise and so on really can't help. You need to get the basic conditions for um, for business right before business can take place. And this doesn't, by the, by the way, mean sweeping away the intervention of the state at all. In fact, in some cases it means that the state needs to provide these things which are not provided by the markets, which I think is one of the problems that's happened in the past. But I certainly think there's not enough emphasis put on things like this because they're boring and they're not sexy. And yet it's, they sound
0: like um, they sound like things that are... Quite cheap, and quite straightforward to do, and about which there isn't much disagreement about what needs to be done. Infrastructure is often expensive. Okay. Indeed,
1: but sometimes they're financially cheap. I mean, the World Bank study suggested that three quarters of the um, of the delays faced by companies in developing countries weren't actually to do with physical things like infrastructure; they were to do with things like corruption at customs and so forth. Now. Um, financially a lot of these things like customs reform and so on may be cheap politically they're very difficult and they're very expensive and just as with you know agricultural policy in in Europe and the US it, this involves taking on entrenched elites you know working the, the customs bureaucracy in in many developing countries is a tough well organized elite which has done very well out of itself out of guarding the mountain pass and done very well out of itself out of extracting bribes and so forth taking those people on is difficult one of the most interesting things i found over the last um, decade or so was the study that in the aftermath of 911 there was a lot of talk that um you know new security Procedures and container screening and all the rest of it, it was going to throw sand in the wheels of globalization. It would slow transport down. It would mean everything was much slower. Actually, what happened in the in the few years afterwards is a lot of ports actually speeded up. The reason for this, as far as you can tell me, is that you know, in any given country there will be generally be a fight between the reformers um, and the on guard, or you know the, the 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 clean hands and the dirty hands. And one of the things that the post 9/11 security considerations meant was it strengthened the hand of the reformers. Suddenly they have an external mm-hmm. imperative. They can go and say, sorry, we've got to computerize the customs system. We can't do it like that anymore, because otherwise we can't export to any American port. So sorry, we have to do it. And by strengthening their hand, that enabled them to do things that they'd known, and lots of people know, and they should have been doing for, should have done a long time before, but hadn't been able to because of political constraints.
0: The book isn't just about trade policy and protection of industry it's about a series of as you um as you said uh, interesting questions and some of them are quite quixotic and counterintuitive. One of them is about water virtual water, which I think at some point in the book you say is the most interesting new idea that you've come across. Tell us a bit about um the answer the question why does Egypt import? Uh, so much of its basic food, and what the answer is.
1: You know, I mean, <clears throat> the answer to this is, is you know, actually a fairly simple, basic um, question of trade economics that goes all the way back to David Ricardo. It's a simple question of um, comparative advantage. So, growing grain is largely a question of water, and so what Egypt is doing by importing grain from around the world is implicitly importing all the water that's used to grow it. So, you know, of course, they could import. You know, thousands and thousands of tonnes of fresh water and then grow their own grain. Instead of what they do, they import the wheat and implicitly it's got this water um, embedded in it. And I just found this a kind of fascinating way of thinking about trade and thinking about the way that comparative advantage works. And the interesting thing about it is it's the free market that does it. You know, No one has to intervene. You don't need any great teams of international bureaucrats sending water around the world from... Wet places to dry places—it's just the action of the market that does it.
0: Although it's an interesting example, because as you know, I live in Ethiopia, and eighty-five um, percent of the waters of the Nile come from Ethiopia, and yet Ethiopia benefits relatively little from that. It it passes down down the Blue Nile through Khartoum to Egypt, and Egypt has has prospered, uh, and and Ethiopia hasn't. Now. Um, uh, this is an example of a market of a missing market isn't it where ethiopia isn't at the mom- in the at the moment in a position to sell the natural asset that it has the access to water which at the moment is be- and in fact there are teams of international bureaucrats the egyptian government has people stationed at lake tana uh, which is the source of the blue nile so um isn't there going to come a day when when actually water tra- explicit water trading is going to be necessary where countries are going to have to sell each other riparian rights um, either in the form of um, some kind of tax or some kind of um, some kind of property rights
1: over water well indeed I mean when countries are right next to each other and sharing a similar sort, you know a, a common source of water as with um, the Nile obviously that's the case but you know in many countries around the world you're quite right one of the problems with water is it's not priced properly you know there need to be better water markets than there are and even in um, single countries where the sort of intra-country negotiation issue doesn't exist like Australia and Australia has one of the more sophisticated water pricing policies in the world. Still there's a, there's a gigantic misallocation of water um, within Australia because the prices that are charged farmers are, are far too low compared to the prices that are charged for, for water in the cities. So yes, absolutely, in order to make these markets work properly, as with many markets, as particularly mm-hmm. with the market for carbon emissions and so forth, um when there's when there's an issue of the commons, then there has to be um an intervention. But I think this is largely uh confined to either issues within countries or the example you pointed out where one or more countries or one or more states, as happens with the US and the Colorado River and so on, share a common water resource and have to work out a way of, of you know allocating it between them. Another challenge that your book addresses, which um I thought
0: was an interesting question to be asked asking at this time is why whether and why islamic countries grow more slowly tell us tell us
1: again why you addressed this question and, and what... well this one was just because this is a lot of prejudice in my view that i heard expressed in the aftermath of um, september the 11th that you know afghanistan is a failed state um that extreme islamism arises because um islamic countries have have uh, failed to enrich their citizens sufficiently. And that there's something intrinsic about the nature of Islam which um, stops countries growing. And I thought, wait a second, I've heard this before. I've heard this, I've heard, you know, that the sociologist Max Weber argue this with regard to Protestantism or particular kind of Protestantism versus other religions. Um, I've heard it argued with regard to Confucianism um, in East Asia and so on. And I simply didn't believe it was true and a very interesting paper which just looked at the numbers and pointed out that over the last half century, um, it just isn't true. It's, you know, you can test it. It is not true that Islamic countries have grown slower than non-Islamic countries, particularly when you compare um, countries which are otherwise similar, like compare Muslim Malaysia with Buddhist Thailand, largely Buddhist Thailand, with the Christian Philippines. You know, it's the, it's the Muslim country that's done the best. So the issue really was then, okay, so why did the Muslim countries, having been... You know at the beginning of the um the second millennium um the first few decades uh, the first few centuries of the the second millennium these wonderful huge trading empires that spanned the world why was it that they um that they failed and that they they shrank back and my w- conclusion was it was nothing to do with the structure of islam itself you know these arguments about islam forbidding the lending of money at interest and so on when you when you actually look at it, there were plenty of ways of getting around it. It wasn't particularly strong. What it was more was a sense of um, uh, the the rulers of those particular countries not allowing um, laws to change and using, when necessary, the rules of Islam um, or distorting the rules of Islam in order to entrench themselves in, in power. And One of the, the historical reasons for this, in my view, was It's the Mongols. We can always blame the Mongols for this because the Mongols crashed in um, and instituted a whole series of kind of very authoritarian, centralised, top-down, militaristic societies, which happened to be Muslim. Now, if you wanted to test this, what you would need to do, of course, is find a country where the Mongols also came in and instituted this centralised, top-down kind of form of government, which was a Christian country, and say, has that grown as well? In fact, we do have one. It's Russia. Mm. And you know the way that Russia has been governed and the way that Russia has been governed before communism and after communism as well looks to me a lot like these you know not particularly successful failed states where not failed states, but these not particularly successful countries where um entrepreneurship is not allowed to flourish, where too much power is concentrated in the center and so I think it has a lot more to do with kind of historical bad luck and you know temporal. Power of of the, the kind of the people running the country, rather than it has to do with the structure of the religion that happens to be um, popular in that country.
2: And path dependence, you're implying very strong path dependence.
1: That's a, a very good example of mm. path dependence. Once you get stuck on it, it's hard to get out of it. Mm. it
0: there's an assumption going on in in your argument that um, autocratic top-down um, regimes tend to be less successful, but. And and you can think of uh, the problems that, for example, China had with, with an isolationist policy. But you can also think of quite good examples on c- the Korean generals and Singapore where actually quite autocratic governments and leadership has done quite well, at least in uh, over a,
1: a small period of time. They're quite autocratic, but they fostered competition. I mean, if you look at the, the Korean um, experience, there was certainly... The Chebol, the big um, kind of industrial conglomerates, they were indeed, you know, um, kind of grew up under this centralised regime. But they were allowed to grow and shrink and fail and so on. If you look at, you know, the, the kind of biggest companies in one particular decade, they often had not existed or they'd been much smaller a couple of decades before. So, it's, so it is it so possible, it's difficult, but it is possible, certainly in the early stages of industrialization to run a country with a degree of authoritarianism and still allow competition between, you know, different companies, I don't think that's happened. For example, in Russia.
0: So it's less about um, democratic process versus authoritarian, and more to do with whether rent seeking uh, is allowed to take hold, whether interest groups are allowed to dominate the way the political
1: structure works. Is that? I think that's right, but i'd I'd be I'd be cautious of. Um, uh, I'd be cautious of, of suggesting that, that countries can continue to develop under an authoritarian regime. I think you know, after a bit, or certainly after they get to more sophisticated economies, it's, it's increasingly difficult to run a country this way, and that's increasingly important than in democracy and freedom, particularly the freedom of speech and, and uh, so forth. Um, in post-industrial countries I think are quite kind of essential to building information societies and, and societies based on that kind of advanced technology.
2: And it's not just a matter of whether there's rent-seeking or, as we say, corruption or not, or the degree of it. It's also, uh, very importantly, a matter of how the um, revenue raised through corrupt means, how it's used, whether it's invested productively uh, or it's invested in luxury yachts in Monte Carlo. That makes a very big difference. And one thing that happened in East Asia... Was that yes? There was actually a lot of corruption. There was a lot of insider dealing. A lot of rents accrued, but uh, particularly because the overall regime uh, did, as Alan said, emphasise competition as well as protection. It was a competition. It was a combination that economists say you can't have, but they showed that you can have it: protection plus competition. Um, it meant that the rents, on the whole, were used productively to. In the form of reinvestment to spur national economic growth.
0: Now, Alan has a, a chapter about the, some of these paradoxes of corruption, and in, in particular, there is a, a somewhat simplistic, two-dimensional idea that you know, corruption is bad and will damage growth, and lack of corruption and honesty in government is good and will uh, will be good for growth. And of course, um, the example you give is is Tanzania led. Led uh, honestly, uh, but to uh, without a lot of growth, and Indonesia, um, where there was quite a lot of corruption, but nonetheless uh, much more economic success. Uh, And part of it
1: is is to do with this reinvestment story. But explain. It is a reinvestment story, but it's also an efficiency story about whether corruption is, is run efficiently and how much it's actually allowed to interfere in the business of daily life. I mean, the. The situation in Indonesia under Suharto was that Corruption pretty much became a tax. You pretty much knew what you were doing. Of course, you know Suharto and his cronies would cream ten or fifteen percent off the top. But as long as you knew that was going to happen, and as long as Robert points out, you get stuff back from it in terms of infrastructure. You know, in terms of um, information about the way things are going and so on. Then you can you can um, you can flourish reasonably well under that kind of that that form of corruption. The problem with countries like Tanzania is that. There was a gigantic amount of corruption, not from the centre, not from the area, Julius Nyerere himself, who by all accounts is a very honest man, but he instituted um, huge numbers of, kind of local bureaucrats who were able to exploit um, local economies and he had no control over them. So it was a decentralised, disorganised corruption, uh, which was also very uncertain. He was just subject to the whim of whoever the local, you know, the local bureaucrat happened to be. Um, and that was enormously damaging to growth so I agree it's not just a simply a question of, of corruption or not corruption it's it's the way it it is operated and the way it happens I mean my favourite story I think which I kicked this chapter off is um, someone very senior in the Indian government once said to me I was asking him why India got so much less foreign direct investment than China and he said um, corruption and I said but China is well known as being corrupt. I mean, the, the transparency international corruption measures for China and India are just about the same. And he said, yeah, the thing with China is there's only one party to bribe. Thanks for
0: listening to Development Drums. I'm Owen Bader, and I've been talking today to Alan Beatty, the author of False Economy, A Surprising Economic History of the World, published by Penguin Books which I recommend as a very entertaining account of the complexities and difficulties of generalising about why some countries become rich. And I've also been talking to Professor Robert Wade of the London School of Economics. You can download Development Drums from iTunes or from the Development Drums website at developmentdrums.org. And you can also join our Facebook group to suggest topics or guests or questions for future guests. And, of course, you can follow us on Twitter at Development Drum. Thanks for listening.